morning, everyone. Please find your way in God's precious word to Mark chapter 6. We're going to get to chapter 6 today, but we're going to talk about clean and unclean that we saw in chapter 5 and its purpose in understanding these truths then make it easier for us to understand the rest of the text. So as we've been studying this text, we, we have seen that the times, they are changing. Jesus has brought the kingdom of God to this earth. There, there are big changes going on. Uh, Jesus has called a new 12 to represent Israel. He, he has made it clear that Jesus is now our Sabbath. He's always been our Sabbath, but he is our Sabbath. It is Jesus in whom we now place our rest. It's no longer a day. Jesus is our rest. We, we rest in him because we know that we know that our salvation is safe and secure in the hands of Jesus. We rest because we know that we are safe and secure in the hands of God. Amen? Jesus has broken down the strongholds and has taken the kingdom of God to the Gentiles. He has taken the kingdom of God to the nations. That's us, anyone who is not Jewish. And he has proclaimed the good news. That is, repent and believe in the good news. And that's exactly how his ministry began how Jesus began his ministry, and, and that was his message that he proclaimed right up until he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And that message is still being proclaimed today, and we are to proclaim that the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, says Jesus. So one may be asking, what, what is the gospel? I hear gospel all the time. I, what are we to believe? I hear good news all the time. You know, what does that mean? Well, that is a great question because that is probably one of the most important questions one could ask. I'm going to read what D.A. Carson says. He answers the question this way. The gospel is tied to the Bible storyline. Indeed, it is incomprehensible without understanding that storyline. God is the sovereign, transcendent, and personal God who has made the universe including us, his image bearers. Our misery lies in our rebellion, our alienation from God, which despite his forbearance, attracts his implacable wrath. But God, precisely because love is the very essence of his character, takes the initiative and, pre and prepared for the coming of his own son by raising up a people who, by conventional stipulations, temple worship, systems of sacrifice, and of priesthood, by kings and by prophets, are taught something of what God is planning and what he expects. In the fullness of time, his son comes and takes on human nature. He comes not in the first instance to judge, but to save. He dies the death of his people, rises from the grave, and in returning to his heavenly father, bequeaths the Holy Spirit as the down payment and guarantee of the ultimate gift he has secured for them. An eternity of bliss in the presence of God himself. In a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteousness. The only alternative is to be shut out from the presence of God forever in the torments of hell. What men and women must do before it's too late is repent and trust Christ. The alternative is to disobey the gospel. Alistair Begg says it in a simpler form. Because Christ died for us. Those who trust in him may know that their guilt has been pardoned once and for all. 
What will we have to say before the bar of God's judgment? Only one thing. Christ died in my place. That's the gospel. Amen? That's why Jesus said the time has, is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what else will. You know, the gospel, the good news, it keeps me excited. It keeps me going. And I hope it does the same for you. I hope you rest in the fact that Jesus has saved our souls. And so as we have studied this letter from Mark, we have seen the fulfillment of the gospel happening. We have seen the fulfillment of the kingdom of God coming to this earth. And last week, we looked at a, a Mark and Sandwich, if you remember. Mark places an event inside of an event. You know, we had Jarius, the, he was the synagogue leader, he, he, getting down on his knees, begging Jesus to come and lay hands on his daughter because death was at her door. Jesus agrees to go, and while he's on his way, there's an interruption. A lady with an incurable hemorrhaging disease touches the garment of Jesus and was healed of her disease. And Jesus stops on his way to Jairus' house, stops and takes time to converse with this lady. And in the meantime, Jairus' daughter passes away. Then Jesus continues to Jairus' house and lays hands on the dead child and brings her back to life. That's the sandwich right there. So in chapter 5, we see... Jesus making the unclean clean, including the demon-possessed man who lived among the tombs, if you remember him. And if we look deeper into this chapter, we, we would ask the question, well, well, what makes these people unclean? You know, who, who declares these people unclean? What, what happens when someone is declared unclean? So I'm going to take just a minute and just walk through that a little bit so we could better understand our text as we go through. You see, in the Old Testament, a person or thing could contract ritual uncleanliness or impurity in a variety of ways. By skin disease, discharges of body fluids like the woman that was bleeding, touching something that was dead like the man who lived among the tombs or like when Jesus touched an, uh, uh, the dead girl and brought her back to life. Now, so if, if we look at what the law says about being unclean, if you, if you think about this for a second, with what Jesus did with these three people, the, the guy at the tomb, the, late, the bleeding lady, and the dead, dead child, if, if, what, if what he had done with these three people, he would have been declared unclean like nobody's business. He went into an unclean land among the tombs, un, unclean tombs and pigs, dealt with unclean man, an unclean man with unclean spirits. An unclean woman touched him. Jesus touches a 12-year-old girl's dead body, which declares him unclean. The only way Jesus could be declared any more unclean was if he was eating a pork sandwich while he did all of this. That is the only way. So what, what is the purpose of God establishing something clean and unclean? What is the purpose of all of that that we read about in Leviticus? The central lesson conveyed by the system is that God, this is what we're going to take away from it, God is holy and human beings are not. We are contaminated. Everyone, except for one, I'll let you guess who that is, is declared unclean and needs to be cleansed. One thing that makes man unclean is sin. We are all born with sin. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we are unclean because of our sin. 
And because of sin, God had established one of the rituals. He established a sin offering, uh, better known as a purification offering. And it served to cleanse both sin and ritual impurity. But all of this, as we see, all of this was just a shadow of things to come. All of these rituals were to point to Jesus. Because human beings are unclean and sinful and cannot approach a holy God. That's why we need Jesus. And so as you read through the rituals, know that each ritual that God had established had its purpose. And it was to point to the holiness of God and to the coming Messiah, to the Savior. An example of this, when God prohibited eating the fat of sacrificial animals and the blood of any animal, it reminds Israel that a blood sacrifice reconciles sinful, unclean people with the holy God. That's what they were supposed to see. All of these rituals had a certain purpose. They pointed to the blood that would make one clean. And by looking back at that ritual, that should, have, that should send everyone to the blood of Jesus. You should be able to go back, see that in the Old Testament, see what Jesus has done, and that should drive you to Jesus. Jesus is the one, as we have seen, he is the one that makes the unclean clean. It is his blood that cleanses and that purifies. It is his blood that makes sinful man righteous. We are unrighteous without the blood of Jesus. He makes the way for sinful man to be reconciled with the holy God. Amen? Christ is, listen, listen what's going on here in our text. Christ was bringing the new covenant in his blood. The times were changing. When Christ walked this earth, he did not hesitate to touch the dead as we have seen. He allowed a sinful woman, a, a prostitute, to touch him, we read about in Luke 7, despite her ritual as well as her moral uncleanliness. He touched leopards. That was a no-no. And we have seen that he let the woman with the flow of blood touch him. And through all of this, take note, Jesus was not defiled. Right? He was not declared unclean. He went through no ceremonial purification. And the reason he didn't is obvious. Because he did not become unclean. He is in the business of making the unclean clean. The times were changing. We see that Jesus turned water in the jars for purification into wine. He did that to symbolize the replacement of the ceremonial laws with something better. Jesus then implicitly declared all foods clean. A new age had dawned with the coming of Christ and the ceremonial laws of purity were passing away. A big one. No need for the temple anymore. Not needed. Jesus is the one that makes the unclean clean, not the rituals. No more rituals. No more going to the temple to be declared clean. No more going to the man as a high priest to be declared clean. We go to the one high priest, and that's Jesus Christ. He declares us clean and righteous. And let me stress this point. Pastor Ryan hit this just a minute ago. We don't clean ourselves up and then come to Jesus. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is the only one who can clean us. We are not able. Without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, we're just a big, dirty mess walking around looking like Pigpen on Charlie Brown. You know, man? Got all that dust following him. Big cloud of uncleanliness is around us. We cannot clean ourselves up. And we see that here in chapter 5. The woman who tried all the ways of man to make herself clean. 
was only made clean by touching Jesus. The community leader turned away from all worldly notoriety, fell down and worshiped Jesus and said, if you just touch my daughter, she will be healed and made clean. So I say to everyone who hears these words, don't put off another moment trying to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. Don't do it. You will never be good enough. You will never be clean enough. Do as Jesus says. Repent. Turn. Turn from whatever you're trusting in that, quote, makes you clean. Turn from that and turn to Jesus and believe in the good news. Amen? Jesus is in the cleaning business. And that brings us to chapter 6. One more thing before we start chapter 6. Some, someone may be thinking, you know, he gives the gospel every week. I've heard it. Doesn't get old to me, but somebody's saying, you know, trust in Jesus, trust in the blood for the payment of our sins. I get it. Why does he do it every week? Well, the problem is, is I don't know who has got it, who gets it, who doesn't get it, who has it. I don't know. I don't know. In our text, we will see unbelief and we will, we will say, man, how could they not believe? How could they not? Unbelief in the people who have seen miracle after miracle. Unbelief in the people who have heard teaching straight from God himself. So we don't take unbelief lightly. That's why here at Living Hope, we don't assume because you have heard it that you got it. So we continue to do what God has called us to do, and that is to proclaim the gospel, proclaim the good news, and make disciples. Chapter 6, verse 1. Let's look at our text. He went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his, in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. And he could not do mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So Jesus now leaves the Sea of Galilee. Remember, he came back. He's at the sea. He leaves the Sea of Galilee, and he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And, and we know this is his hometown because in chapter 1, 9, we read that in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to, of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Luke 4, 16 says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So this was his hometown. Not a well-known place, not, not a big city, not a big city at all. So I'm pretty sure because of its size that uh, everyone in town knew who Jesus was. Keep that in mind as we walk through our text today. So Jesus leaves the Sea of Galilee, goes to his home, and with that change of location comes a change in the tenure of the narrative. You know, in the last chapters, in the last chapter, as we've seen, Jesus displayed his lordship over nature and demons and death. 
Everyone saw that he indeed had control over creation, control over the spiritual world, and control over life and death. His deity, his deity was on full display. But when he comes to his hometown, when he comes back home, they do not welcome him as teacher. It doesn't even seem like they welcome him back as a miracle worker that we talked about last week. But instead, what he and his disciples encountered was disbelief, unbelief. Instead of being amazed by his power and authority, they rejected him. They were not amazed at Jesus, but it was Jesus who was amazed at them. He was amazed or marveled at their unbelief. You know, I was thinking, there's not much that Jesus, the Son of God, would be amazed about. You know what I'm saying? He created everything. He sustains everything. How are you going to wow Jesus, you know, with a trick? You know, look at this. I mean, but when it comes to disbelief in him, he's amazed. He marveled at their hardened hearts. Something to think about. So Jesus comes to his hometown, and as usual, the text says on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. According to his custom, this is what Jesus did. Jesus address, addresses his teaching in the synagogue. This, this is what he's doing here. He's taking the message to the heart of the Jewish community when he comes to town. He's teaching in the synagogue, a place where they're supposed to be studying the scriptures. This is the place where the people there would have seen what Jesus had done, a place where the people would have heard what Jesus had taught. And, and of all the places, this should have been where the people would have seen, what Je seen that Jesus was indeed fulfilling the prophecies that they had been studying. He was fulfilling the prophecies that he proclaimed he fulfilled. They should have been able to put all this together and know that Jesus is the one that was sent by God. They should have been able to see that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. They should have been able to recognize that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was standing before them proclaiming the Scriptures, proclaiming truth and wisdom. They, of all people, should have known. But as we can see, they didn't make that connection. They didn't make that connection. Look at their response. Instead of, like we were supposed to do, instead of searching the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true, they began to question him. Where did this man get these things? What's his wisdom that's given to him? How are such mighty works done by this guy? Is he not a carpenter? Isn't that, you know, Mary's uh, son? Questioning him. Questioning is not bad, remember? You hear us say it all the time. Ask questions as you study the text. That, that's how you dig in. You know, uh, uh, we, we read, we have a question, we dig in to find the answer to that question. It's good to ask questions and to find the truth. But don't waste your time like I do with questions that don't have answers to them, like sitting there going, if this is Jesus' hometown, I bet he had some friends. I wonder if they're ever like laying on the grass looking up the clouds and the boy beside him goes, you know, you ever wonder what heaven's going to be like? That's where my mind goes. Don't do that. I wonder what Jesus said. <laughs> Don't ask questions like I do. Ask questions. It's okay. But no, when it comes to questioning God, it is, as Chris would put it, it's all about the heart when you're asking the questions. 
What is your intent? Do you want to know the truth? Or do you just want to argue about it? Do you desire to know more about God? Or do you have a hatred or disdain in your heart and you just want to question truth? It's all about the heart and the intent, as we will see here in this text. So Jesus comes teaching the truth. What's the reaction of people? What does it say? Just like usual, they were astonished. You know, what did we learn about Jesus' teaching in chapter 1? The people were amazed because Jesus was teaching with authority. They were amazed. You know, they were, they were amazed at that one. Here it says they're astonished. Again, Jesus' wisdom and mighty works captivates everyone, including the people of his own town who do not believe. Remember what we saw last week. Jesus is known throughout the land as what? Teacher. Teacher, a very powerful teacher. He's known for his miracles, yes, but the people called him teacher because of the wisdom that he shared with the people. Think about this for a second. The Jewish people have a long history of prophets. They have a long history of learned scribes. They have thousands of rabbis, all of them trained in the scriptures. And here comes Jesus on the scene. He is not a, quote, taught scribe. A rabbi has not taken him under his wing. He has not spent eight, spent eight years in the seminary. Why? Well, we know. He did not need to be taught the word because he is the word. We know. He did not need the wisdom because he is wisdom, right? But here he comes teaching with authority, with, with authority and, and with power. And the people in his hometown could not understand where his wisdom of the scriptures came from. Or just his general wisdom, you know. Where did he get this? Where did that come from? We know he has not been to school, they would say. We know he has not been an apprentice to a famous rabbi. If he had, he would be declaring that, as all rabbis would. Where did it come from? Write this verse in your margin. Jesus tells us and them where he got his teaching. Listen to John 7, 14 through 18. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple. Listen, he's not teaching at a little synagogue here. He's at the main temple, and he begins teaching. The Jews therefore marveled. Look, there they are. They're marveled again at the teaching of Jesus. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus thoroughly explained where his teaching came from. Everyone should be able to put all of this together and know without a doubt that Jesus is the one that is sent. He challenged him, go back to the scripture and look and match it up with my saying, is there any falsehood here? It's not. You know, a lot of times people can hear the truth, but they don't hear the truth when they do hear the truth. You see, they already have an answer in their mind when they ask the question. So, so when they do ask the question, they really don't hear the answer, they just hear what they already have in their mind. You may have heard the statement, 
You hear what you want to hear. That's, that's why. Now think about this for a moment. Nazareth is a very small town. A young man grows up in that town. Everyone knows him. He leaves home. He, go, he goes out and does things only God can do. He comes back. There's no welcoming committee. He comes back. There's no town parade. There's no celebration. Everyone knows who Jesus is. He, had, he ran a business in the town. Everyone's talking about the miracles. Everyone's talking about his teaching. You would think there would be some kind of to do about him coming back home, but there wasn't. Does that affect Jesus? Not at all. What does he do? He comes home, continues his ministry, ministry by teaching the truth to the people. And instead of taking in the truth, the people are skeptical and attempt to discredit his ministry. Why? Disbelief and hatred. They begin disrespecting him. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? Where did this man get these things? Really? This man? They could not even call him by his name, even though they know him personally? Why? The truth is, the name Jesus is offensive to an unbelieving world. The world hates the name of Jesus. Like Pastor Ryan says, if you're witnessing to someone, they will talk to you all day long about God. They will say, yes, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in a higher being. But as soon as you bring up the name Jesus, you will see the hatred come out. Their whole demeanor will change. And when you say that Jesus Christ is God or that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, they will shut you down. The name of Jesus changes everything. Hey, just look on, look on, watch TV. Everyone could talk about God, but do not bring up the name of Jesus. They will shut you down. But Scripture does not agree with the modern TV today. Scripture does not agree with the world. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and in the, under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Scripture doesn't agree with the world. There's something about that name Jesus. Luke says, and behold, you conceive in your womb and bear a son, and he shall, be, and he shall call his name Jesus. That's the name that God gave him. Matthew says, For that which is conceived in her from the Holy Spirit, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Does this make sense to you? Nothing makes me madder than to hear that Jesus will save me from my sins. That really makes me mad. I don't get it. That makes no sense to the ones who know what Jesus has done. You know, when I hear that Jesus saves a soul, man, I could just spit. I, you know, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. 
you know, that, that, that sounds like good news to me. <laughs> I would be excited. For the ones who have been saved from their sins, Jesus is a wonderful name. For the ones who have eternal life with God Almighty, Jesus is a precious name. Amen? For, for the ones who love their sin more than they love God, Jesus is a name that reveals hatred towards God. They would not even call him by his name. They could not even honor him as a teacher. They just wanted to humiliate him and discredit him. They asked three questions that they already know the answer to. They asked three questions that the answer is very obvious. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So where where did the origin of his teaching come from? Where did this wisdom come from? Where did that power come from that he's able to do these miracles? The answer to all three is either God or Satan. And that's why they struggled with the answer themselves. The only one who would have a problem giving the right answer to all, of, all, all three of these questions is the one who is in disbelief. The one who does not believe. The one that has hardened his own heart. We've seen this before, right? The scribes committed the unpardonable sin. They said what Jesus did, they, they said Jesus did what he did by the power of Satan. Same thing right here. Where did he get this power? How does he do it? Listen, they understood the power of Jesus. They knew that he was teaching the truth. But they didn't want to give God the credit. Hey, look, they let Jesus teach in the synagogue. Not just anyone was allowed to do that. You had to be qualified. Right? So he's up there teaching. So if they're going to say that Jesus taught under the power of Satan, that means that they are guilty of allowing Satan to teach in the synagogue. Why their hypocrisy knows no bounds. So they attack him personally by not calling him by his name. They have tried to discredit his power by asking where it comes from. And then they attack his deity. They continue, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and, and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they say, is, is he not just a carpenter, people? Is he not just that, a common laborer? Is he not just some ordinary man? Is he not just some one of us? There's nothing special about this guy. Besides, he controls the wind and the rain, heals people, and brings little girls back to life. Other than that, he's just a carpenter from a small town. Nothing special. They're trying to bring him down to his, their level. He's just one of us, people. And then they, they called him or said, he said, they said, this is Mary's son, which is an insult to him and his mother by addressing him like that. They have now stooped so low, they pulled out a your mama on Jesus. <laughs> Believe that. How low can you get? Listen, a, a son was known by his, who his father is. 
That's the, you know, he's son of the father. This was a calculated insult by saying what they did. Because it suggests, listen, this right here suggests that they knew that there was something unusual about the birth of Jesus. There was something special about the birth of Jesus, and they knew it. I'm sure whether they believed it or not, they had heard the story of the virgin birth. This was a small town. And by these comments, I would say they did not believe the truth, but they had heard it. They had heard it. And that's why when they throw in, isn't this his brothers and sisters here? What's that got to do with anything? They threw that out there. Hey, nothing special about this guy. Nothing special about his lineage, beside God being his father. Other than that, he's just an ordinary son. He's just an ordinary brother. They heard the story. They knew of the virgin birth. They were trying to discredit him. And then the word says, verse 3, they took offense at him. I, I, I'm sitting there. If Jesus is just a carpenter, if he's just an ordinary son, an ordinary brother who could teach the scriptures, what's so offensive about him if he's who you say he is? According to your logic, why is Jesus such a stumbling block to you? He's just an ordinary guy. That's what the Greek word means here. They were put off. They took offense, uh, even repelled by him. Jesus is a stumbling block. We can read about this stumbling block in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. And Isaiah says it too. Listen as, we, as I read through here. As you come in, as you come to him, <clears throat> as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves live like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. If you believe in Christ, if you have put your trust in Christ, your trust in God's cornerstone, you will not be disappointed, the scripture says. This stone will not prove faulty. If you build your life on this stone, your life will not crumble in the storm. If you hide behind this stone, you will be safe. If you stand on the truth of this stone, you will not be ashamed. If you join with others in the spiritual house built on this stone, you will be proud of your foundation and your fellowship will stand forever and ever to the glory of God. Amen. But if you don't believe, if you don't trust, then Jesus becomes a stumbling block for you. You will not even want to say his name. It will be a stumbling block instead of a precious cornerstone. And that's what has happened here in Jesus' hometown. He had become a stumbling block for many in the town of Nazareth. So in the face of disbelief and rejection, Jesus quotes a proverb that a prophet is honorable everywhere 
but at his home. Everywhere but at his home. He is not honored in his hometown. He is not honored by his relatives. He's not honored in his own home. His brothers don't even believe at this time. They don't even believe yet. And Jesus says, a prophet is not without, uh, is not without honor except in his hometown, among of his relatives, and his household. So I go back to what I said at the beginning. Just because someone hears the gospel message, it doesn't guarantee that they will accept the gift of God. The people who were in this town, not only had they heard the gospel, but they were exposed to Jesus Christ himself. And yet they declined to believe. There is no guarantee of faith. And as we look at the townspeople's unwillingness to believe, we are again confronted here with the mystery of the kingdom of God. And why didn't they believe? Some of those there who have every opportunity to believe do not. And some who, like the demoniac who lived among the tombs, who would never be expected to believe, he does. That's the mystery of the kingdom. No one can predict who will be a part of the kingdom of God and who will not be. Verse 5 says, and he, will co- and he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Because of such persistent unbelief, Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people and heal a few sick people. But know this, do know this, there was no limitations on the power of Christ. But his purpose was not to perform miracles as a sideshow act. His purpose in the miracles was to validate his message and his deity. But the unbelief was so strong, Jesus just leaves the town. I I don't think he ever goes back there again. Jesus takes his disciples and leaves the town. Hey, remember what he's doing here. He's training up his disciples to take the message of the kingdom of God out into the world. He was preparing them for their own missions, which we will see uh, as we continue this study. And you know what? They learned a very, very valuable lesson that day. No prophet has honor in his hometown and family. The people of Nazareth represents Israel's blindness here. Their refusal to believe in Jesus pictured what the disciples would soon experience. They will be confronted with disbelief also. So I leave you with this thought today. We just read that Jesus was amazed or or that he marveled at their unbelief, right? I want you to know this. Jesus marvels at each and every one of us. Every person that has ever lived, he marvels at them. I say this because there are only two times in the gospel record we find Jesus marveling. Two times. Here we see him marveled at the unbelief of the Jews. And the other time, he marveled at the great faith of a Roman centurion, a Gentile. So when Jesus looks at you, how does he marvel at you? Did he, is he marveling at your unbelief? 
or does he marvel at your great faith? Only you and God know. Pastor Ryan.